Welcome to White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk beside me on White Shores to discuss the real meaning of life. Let's invite some spiritual thought leaders to talk about soul evolution, spiritual awakening, personal growth, angels, the possibility of an afterlife. Let's discuss whether the paranormal is normal and psychic abilities are real. Let's ponder the meaning of our dreams, our intuitions. Let's practice rituals and divination and research the science of consciousness. Let's pause and gaze at the horizon and see what magic lies beyond the material. Walking beside me today on White Shores is psychologist, author, parapsychologist and science promoter, Dr. Callum E. Cooper. If you've been following me over the years, you'll know that recently my passion has been to bring in the science and psychology of transcendent experiences, afterlife encounters, in an attempt to elevate them from the purely anecdotal and belief-based material that my earlier books were based on that. I I was tired of the skeptics saying, where's the science, where's the proof? So I have reached out to connect with scientists, psychologists, parapsychologists, and it's been a fascinating journey. And one of the reasons why I did White Shores was to showcase these remarkable people researching consciousness and the paranormal. And one of those people, remarkable people, is Dr. Cooper. Um, I go way back with Dr. Cooper, actually, because he got in touch with me nearly 10 years ago, I think. At the time, I'd just written my first Sunday Times bestseller, An Angel Called My Name, and it was doing really well. And I got an email from him where he was based at the time, uh, the university he was based, saying he was collecting paranormal um, experiences for his PhD research. And would I be willing to um, contribute some names and stories, put him in touch with people so he could interview them? He was particularly interested in stories involving technology or phones, mobiles, etc. And he'd read um, a story in one of my books, which had really gripped him. And he wanted to talk to, to the person behind it and, and include it in his research. And if you stay tuned after our interview, I'll I'll read a couple of those stories that that Cal was intrigued by um, and encouraged him to reach out to me. Um, But anyway, uh, I got in touch, was delighted to do so, and we have kept in touch ever since. Um, I like to send him stories if he asks, and I've seen him go on to amazing things. He's won award after award for his research into the paranormal and in psychology, and um, I I'm delighted because I often now quote his research in my books, particularly his research into dreams of the bereaved. I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Um, It's a very open-minded interview where we look at both the believer and the skeptical, skeptic viewpoint. So please do stay tuned. And as always, please do send me your thoughts at angeltalk710 at aol.com. I'd love to hear your reaction to this interview in particular. This episode is brought to you by my brand new Dream Decoder, published by Lawrence King. The stunning deck features 60 beautifully illustrated cards designed to interpret your most common dreams. If you've ever woken up and thought, what did that dream mean, then this deck is for you. And I'm pleased to say we're giving listeners of White Shores a unique code to get 35% off the Dream Decoder. Just visit www.lawrenceking.com and enter Teresa Chung at checkout. 
Dr. Callum E. Cooper. His website is www.callumecooper.com. Is a chartered psychologist with the British Psychological Society and a fellow of the Higher Education Academy, holding postgraduate degrees in psychology, social science research methods and education from the University of Northampton and Sheffield Hallam University. Um, he's also a member of many organisations such as the Society of Psychical Research and he works closely with the place, uh, Scientist Advisory Boards for the Forever Family Foundation. If you listen to my interview with, um, with Lloyd Auerbach, I mentioned the Forever Family Foundation and also for the Windbridge Research Centre. If you listen to my interview with Dr Julie Byshaw, we talked all about the research into mediumship there. He's received numerous grants and awards for his work and research, including the Eileen Garrett Scholarship, the Alex Tannis Scholarship Award, uh, and endless. I'm looking at all these awards. There's so many. He is super, super clever. And in 2018, he was recognised for excellence in sceptical activism and became shortlisted for the Occam's Razor Award for such work. So we're going to get the sceptic's viewpoint as well, everyone, which I, I love because I love talking to sceptics. Um, um, I always love to hear other point of views. His main research, however, has focused around bereavement and recovery. And that's the research I actually highlight in my books because I think it is so encouraging for belief in eternal life, the afterlife. So we're going to talk about that in the interview. Um, he uh, conducts many interviews with the bereaved to understand the process of loss and coping and how dreaming about the bereaved um, helps that process. Because I found when I speak to people who have lost loved ones, if they are dreaming of lost loved ones, they tend to be able to cope better with the lost. Again, I'd love your experiences and stories about that. If you have dreamed of departed loved ones, has it healed and comforted you? Last but no means least, um, uh, the talented Callum is also an author of various excellent books, research chapters and papers, and I highly recommend uh, Telephone Calls from the Dead. So without further ado, let's chat to Callum Cooper. Welcome, Cal. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and life to walk with me on White Shores. I'm really happy you're here. Thank you. My pleasure. I didn't know we were walking on some White Shores, so that's that's even nicer. I can see the sunset <laughs> in the distance. It's, it's picturesque, exactly. beautiful. <laughs> so for people who don't know you who you are, please tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm uh, Dr. Cal Cooper, or also known as Callum E. Cooper. That's usually the name that people see with my writing. Um, I'm a uh, lecturer at the University of Northampton in the Psychology Division, the Faculty of Health and Society. And uh, within that, I'm the module coordinator for our third year um, undergraduate program of um, psychology, but the third year program of parapsychology and anomalous experiences. So when you do a degree, you get to pick various modules that make up your degree. And one of them in the third year is parapsychology. And we have a whole research team um, at the university interested in this and transpersonal psychology, so religious and peak experiences. I know we'll come back to parapsychology a bit more, um, but I'm part of a team of probably about um, 14, 15 members of staff 
uh, that are interested in parapsychology and anomalous experiences um, from uh, master students that we have all the way through to PhD candidates and then full-time members of staff as well. And uh, I lecture on a variety of things, not just parapsychology, death, dying and bereavement, human sexual behavior, positive psychology. And I do like looking at some ancient mysticism as well, so ancient Egypt and um, also um, ancient Rome as well. So uh, I'm kind of varied in the different things that I do and my interests, but that's me in a nutshell what I do. I work at a university and I lecture on unusual experiences people have and try to understand the psychology behind them. I think varied is an understatement. I think there's never a dull moment with you. I get that sense. (laughs) (laughs) So for people who are new, uh, just forgive me, can you just tell us what is parapsychology? Yeah, I thought we'd come to a good definition for it so we can start the ball rolling. Um, uh, So most people that are interested in the paranormal, they've got an inkling of what it's about, but there's a load of misconceptions and um, it's quite a sorry state when we get people sometimes that come to the university and they're aware of parapsychology, but only from what they've Googled on the internet. So it's a lot of re-educating and a lot of jaw-dropping for them when they actually see what an active department involved in parapsychology does and all the misconceptions out there, how a lot of what they read on the internet seems to have nothing to do or completely contradicts what goes on in the published journals and, and at the, res- uh, the research institutes and universities. So parapsychology is essentially um, the science of um, studying human experiences which seem in principle outside of the realms of current scientific understanding. Um, so this could involve three different aspects. We've got extrasensory perception, um, which looks at telepathy, mind-to-mind interaction, clairvoyance, seeing information at distance and precognition, having visions of things um, that are yet to come. Um, Second area, psychokinesis, also known as telekinesis, um, sometimes referred to as PK as well, so uh, psychokinesis shortened down. This is the alleged ability to influence people or the environment via the power of the mind alone. Um, A lot of people will relate that to the idea of metal bending, um, but Again, that has loads of misconceptions on the, the TV and a lot of popular portrayals because that's always showing people touching the items. A lot of classic research in parapsychology is about people that don't touch these items but are still able to influence things at distance. And then the third area will be survival. So any kind of phenomena that suggests that maybe consciousness, human personality, awareness can survive outside of the body um, while that person's still living, potentially, so the outer body experience, the near-death experience, or even beyond bodily death. So looking at apparitions, ghosts, hauntings, poltergeist phenomena, mediumship, reincarnation, and things beyond that. And, and it splits into different areas. So that's parapsychology. And it's open to the idea that we all re- always start from the idea that we've we've got potentially a whole host of conventional explanations that we're already aware of that seem to apply, but we're willing to accept with evidence that maybe there's an extra step, something new to learn. So that's where we've got some unusual but rather interesting um, effects going on that seem to suggest ESP. There's a lot of research that seems to support that. So that's where we look at, is there a new mechanism to learn about here? We also have a side branch, which is anomalistic psychology, which isn't so interested in that, is there something new to learn? Anomalistic tries to, uh, Anomalistic psychology tries to put everything into that one box and try, tries to find an explanation for what we're already aware of. And then the other branch to the other side of parapsychology is clinical parapsychology. So we're aware of the phenomena, but we're not interested in challenging it or looking for its ontology, the truth behind it. We want to know someone's had this experience, what kind of impact has it actually had on their health and well-being because of it? So when people have experiences in bereavement, for example. So there's parapsychology in the middle, looking at new things while we're aware of what we already know. One side 
anomalistic psychology, only interested really in what we already know. And the other side, clinical parapsychology, what's the health benefit? Why do we have these experiences? It's a lot to take in, I know, but that, that's parapsychology in a nutshell. Well, how many students in your department? Um, in terms of the undergraduates? Mm, I'm just or, interested or... to know what, what the, you know, the type of students that come to do these degrees, what's, you know, what's drawing them to it? I mean, how, 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 how busy, and busy, is, busy is it? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the ones that are really passionate about it are those that go on to to do the top level degree, so a research degree, mm -hmm. a master's of philosophy or a PhD. And we'll probably have about two to three of those um, consistently every year. I mean, they're always coming and going with the, the start of it and the completion and a PhD just flies by when you're supervising one of them. Um, we've just set up a new psychology MSc conversion course, which will allow students to do a dissertation in parapsychology should they wish. So that might see another three or four every year. But with the undergraduate course, we have anywhere between 50 to 60 um, students doing the parapsychology module every year um, as part of their psychology BSc or joint honours programme. And then we maybe have within that about five or six that choose to do their final year dissertation, so a final year research project um, with some parapsychology emphasis and focus. So a couple of my students um, this year um, were so passionate about what they were doing, we've submitted their um, dissertations for the um, Society of Psychical Research Conference that's coming up. One of my students looked at um, childhood experiences of anomalous phenomena, um, so either imaginary friends that were believed to be deceased relatives or um, children having premonitions that appeared to be accurate and people backing this up. Um, she was wanting to do that because she's going on into um, uh, primary school teaching. Um, and she initially wanted to look at stuff with bereavement. I said, well, why don't you do something that's parapsychology, but linked onto what you're doing? You're going to be working with children. So why don't you look a bit more about parapsychology's overlap to childhood experiences? So she did that. And one of my other students was absolutely fascinated with how um, she'd seen what I do as a skeptical activist. Um, and I go out there, and I do a lot of debunking of various things uh, and try and um, talk about why skepticism is important in science. But then she was fascinated with various kind of people active on the internet and what we might call armchair skeptics. They're actually they're constantly calling themselves skeptics, but they're actually the way they're portraying skepticism is actually coming across as pseudo-skepticism. It's completely false, or it's more so what we might call cynicism. So the they're given the evidence, but they'd sooner just deny it outright and actually just put down what they they want the world to to actually be doing and saying. Um, so there's a lot of kind of a emotional, uh, emotionally driven responses to how they seem to act in their own view of skepticism. Mm -hmm. So she was looking at the psychology of dogmatic skepticism, as some people have called this, or assertive skepticism. And again, I say skepticism, but the way that we're looking at it as skeptics as skeptical activists, we're seeing them not in the same league as us. They're, they're doing something that's quite extreme, and she wants to look at the psychology behind, well, why would you act like that when you know that you know, you're, you're pushing the outcome that you want? Um, so we have a variety of students from a, a variety of backgrounds that are going on to do different things in psychology and apply their degree to different things, but they pick up parapsychology on the way, and they think, this is fascinating, I want to learn more about it, and that's great because they take it with them after their degree. They might try and incorporate it into a degree after that. And we've had the odd few students that knew that we do parapsychology. We're one of at least a dozen universities that do talk courses in it in the UK, but some students that have seen parapsychologists on the TV mm -hmm. thought, I want to do that, I want to 
gain some actual accredited qualification in it. And they've done an entire psychology degree just for that third year module and just for the opportunity to do a dissertation in it. Oh, I couldn't think of anything more fascinating, actually, than what you, you are teaching. And um, those lucky students, I wish that those kind of degrees had been around when I was studying. Um, really, and I, I can hear the passion in your voice, Cal, that, you know, I can just see that you must be inspiring your, the whole department. Um, really, <laughs> and it, you know, how... I think I'm doing quite well today because I was at the SPR last night listening to a talk on out-of-body experiences with Ross Bartlett and Dr. Matthew Smith, and I didn't get back in until 2.30 a.m., and I was up again at 7, so I think I'm doing quite well with the passion. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's why, you know, oh, that's brilliant. Have you had, you, I mean, you, you, you lecture about it, you research it, have you had paranormal experiences yourself? Not particularly, not to the extent of um, experiences that other people seem to have where they've seen apparitions and things like that. I mean, I, I'd love to say that I have. I'd love to see a ghost. Um, I, I'd love to have these experiences that people say that they have daily, but I'm constantly the objective person um, on the outside looking in. Uh, I'm on the outside of the house looking through the windows or what everyone else is doing. I've got some colleagues that take a first person parapsychology approach so they want to get involved in experiences and and try and do what people say that they do to induce these experiences or i've got colleagues like dr jack hunter who's a paraanthropologist and so if we're both faced with the opportunity to go and see a seance he'd be the person wanting to sit in on the seance whereas i'm the person that would want to just sit on the outside and just observe um and so yeah i can relate to people having precognitive experiences especially when you might dream of something beforehand um I, i've been involved in dream esp studies where we had to actively do that and we got statistical significance and um in the last study that we did overall for the group of us and some of the individual hits that we got were, were quite fascinating the recent stuff that we did with the flotation tanks as well uh, for something similar we we're doing telepathy tests they were quite remarkable i think one of the hallucinations that i had while i was in there um, that I show is a, a kind of a brilliant example of a hit was you'd have four decoy, uh, sorry, four clips in every potential trial that you do. So I'm inside this flotation tank for an hour and I'm floating around and I'm having these hallucinations as I've got my eyes open in there. And my colleague is, I'm in Nottingham, my colleague is in Northampton and he's viewing one of these four clips. So three become decoys and one is the target. And uh, for this particular trial, after we'd done and they'd gone off to an independent judge and they scored everything, which of these four seems to be the hit, given what I've drawn and written about afterwards, I did the same. I, I judged my own feedback as well, so we could do a comparison. For this one particular one where both the independent judge and myself identified the hit perfectly, I was having visions of um, a bridge over water, cog wheels turning, loads of cars queuing up together. Um, and I think there's a few other things. So in one of the slide presentations I gave, and I showed this at a, a faculty conference recently, and people from uh, social care and nursing and stuff like that, they were just jaw dropping and thinking, what on earth are you guys researching? This is fascinating. <laughs> but what's it for as well? They saw all this, uh, these drawings and what I'd written, cogwheels, water, bridge over water, cars queuing up. And what was the target clip for that? session the target clip turned out to be a clip from the blues brothers where they're all waiting in the car um for oh. the suspension bridge to go up and during that 
clip, you actually see the cogwheels helping the suspension bridge go up over the water. And Dan Aykroyd says to John Belushi, should we go for it? Yeah, or something like that. And he puts his foot on the accelerator and they drive over the suspension bridge as it's, as it's coming. Brilliant. And so everyone's like, how on earth, you know, explain this? I said, well, this is what we're looking into. You know, there's obviously some misses within that trial where what I'm hallucinating doesn't seem to relate at all. Um, to the clip so you know we can obviously look at this and put it down to chance as well because it's a one in four chance of getting it right but we're looking at it over a series of trials this was just a pilot to see if the method and the ethics will work for us in taking this forward but when you look at some of the individual hits some of them like that are actually quite fascinating and it it really makes your heart sing and think oh you know is there generally something to it or is that just a, a fluke and a really good coincidence Oh, it sounds so interesting. And it's fascinating to me what you said about being drawn to it, but not necessarily experiencing it yourself, because that's what I write about a lot in my books. It's that I'm just like a moth to a flame. It's something I'm fascinated in, but I would not say I'm a psychic or a medium. I mean, I'd love to see dead people. I mean, I write enough about them, but (laughs) I haven't had that experience. So what I know what my catalyst was for my interest in the paranormal whatever what was yours was there a moment in your life when you knew this is where you wanted to dedicate your time and you no I mean I, I really wasn't interested in getting involved in the sciences or the social sciences at all I'd always been interested locally um in Nottinghamshire and people um saying that you know this pub's haunted and that pub's haunted and people last night saw a load of glasses fly off the bar or the landlord or landlady came down in the morning and all the tables and chairs were stacked up to the ceiling and yet no one else had been in apart from them. So what was causing it? As a kid, I thought, well, really? This is fascinating, especially when you saw the photographs of some of this really intricate table stacking where it only required one touch of the finger for it to just suddenly all fall to the floor. So it's so intricate. And you're like, well, what on earth does that? Or, you know, is someone really fooling around and has got the time to sew quietly during the night while the landlord and landlady are in bed stack all this up without it falling down once in their attempt to stack it up? Um, you know, what is causing that? And I used to go to the library quite often in Sutton in Ashfield to go to this one particular section with my fellow students in my class. We went to the library once a week and we just look at a variety of books on Fortean phenomena. So it wasn't just ghosts and hauntings. It was about Loch Ness Monster, people saying that they'd seen Bigfoot and UFOs or been abducted. And so I found these accounts fascinating. It certainly takes you out of the norm of day-to-day living. Um, but the hauntings I could relate to more because I've met people that said they'd seen ghosts or I knew of properties that were allegedly haunted. Um, especially locally, there's the Carnarvon Arms, and I still go and eat in there quite regularly, and it's been refurbished many times, but there's some sections of the building that can't be changed because they're, they're heavily listed. Um, so one of them is the ship room, and it's like a captain's galley. Um, even one of the main walls is slanted. It leans out into the courtyard to represent the back of the ship. And it's beautiful. People have had all kinds of experiences in there. But I wasn't going down that route. Um, I was interested in film and performing arts. And um, I was involved in dance, not choreographing, not choreographing the dance, but I was doing the dance myself as an extra string to my bow in acting. And uh, I got disheartened with it because I saw so many other people at my age going then on to college where you could take at least four or five different courses in music, music production, drama, theatre, theatre performance, all kinds of things like that, media studies, filmmaking as an extracurricular activity at lunchtime. And I made a couple of short films while I was at college and they got shown at the Broadway cinema in Nottingham um, and acted in them. I did some of the editing on the videos and stuff, but... Oh, where can we get the oh, links No, they don't exist. <laughs> they ex- 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 oh, exist in my private collection. <laughs> but um, 
they're, they're so <laughs> embarrassing. It was silly films. Yeah, but that's why we need silly, silly horror film things. I will get. Um, but you know, I ended up <laughs> meeting and befriending people that you know loved all kind of dark comedy horror mm. stuff, like Reese Shearsmith and, and people like that. Yeah. Um, only yesterday, when I was in London, I bumped on. I was just speaking to Reese, and I bump into Steve Pemberton on the underground. I said, "Oh, I've literally just been speaking to Reese." So that was a really kind of weird meetup again. I said, "I haven't seen you since Buxton." Um, so you know, I, I got out of acting and. Uh, thought you know maybe I could come back to it at some point so long as I take a qualification that um, I could fall back onto something that's useful for a variety of careers so that's why I pursued psychology but I realized that there were a number of universities that had taught modules of parapsychology and you could do a dissertation in it so I did that but then I guess my my passion for it was quite hooked because the people I was working with my tutors became close friends and then they became more like family and I, I just kept on going back to places like Northampton and then everyone at every other university, you know, we see each other at least once or twice a year and you catch up, see how the research is progressing. Um, people collaborate and stuff. And it's just one big family, really, all these parapsychologists worldwide. So I kind of stayed in the field from there. And I was given a lecturing post at the university. But there were also, you know, oh, you study death and bereavement. Can you actually do some more classes on that? Oh, you're doing sexual behavior. Can you do some more classes on that? And so some of my teaching posts grew and grew. Wow. So would you say that you are a believer in the, after all your research? Are you a believer in the afterlife now, after the research you've um, done? I, I don't think anyone should really list themselves as one thing or the other. I mean, I'm known as a sceptical activist. So I, I am a sceptic mm -hmm. first and foremost. Um, and, you know, I, I think any researcher that says that they've got a belief in this, that or the other, for any science, cancer research, child development, you name it. I believe in this, I believe in that. Well, good for you. I'm not probably interested in your research then because you've already shown a vested interest in the outcome. Yeah. I was trying to get you a parapsychologist before someone, that becomes first, your your scientific research of it well, comes first. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, the general public can have a, a belief in this, that or the other, and you can explain why that may be. But if you want to be a scientist, if you want to embrace the scientific method yeah, but you're, you're human too cow so what are your human beliefs what are you you know getting underneath my that? human belief is that i have a, a vested interest in why people have these experiences it's got just a massive question mark over the top of it for me but both my my human interest yeah. and my interest as a scientist for you know you've asked about survival of death is i i really couldn't give a crap whether we do or don't you know you look at someone that that dies or something that dies and clearly something has left the building and that's it gone lights out nothing more um especially if we stick to a materialist perspective um so why would i still be interested in it um because there's a lot of literature out there especially from psychical research history that shows some really interesting outcomes suggestive of survival of personality beyond death not necessarily a conscious awareness beyond death but when you look at some of the the mediumship um documentation eileen garrett towards the end of her life as a medium she said she didn't necessarily believe that um you know she was interacting with the the conscious minds of the dead she was telepathically picking up on this surviving information or from living people that knew about these people so she, now, that's interesting because, you know, I've done a lot of work with mediums. So are you leaning towards that, that maybe it's telepathy? Well, if you want to take an Occam's razor approach, which doesn't work in every instance of science, so take the, the fewest amount of steps to get your conclusion and the most logical ones as well, stick with stuff that we know about first. Um, if we are 
let's say we've studied a medium that seems to be coming out with these remarkable hits that seem to be on be beyond the cold reading or Barnum script, um, you'd still be jumping the gun to say, well, therefore they're obviously contacting the dead. Well, well, no, we could still entertain the possibility of extrasensory perception being involved. And yet, once you're dead, that's it. So ESP could still be giving the illusion that we are contacting the dead, or these mediums are contacting the dead. So I'd certainly lean towards that first. We'd have to find some way of ruling that out before we then jump over to the conclusion that actually it's not telepathy. They are genuinely speaking or getting information from the dead. Are you researching mediums? Do you? Do you I'm not them? personally. I mean, one of my close colleagues, Rachel Evenden, um, she has been doing as a counselling psychologist from the viewpoint of what therapeutic gains to mediums bring to the bereaved, and she's also working with Professor Chris Rowe and Dr. David Saunders at the Arthur Finlay College at Stansted Hall, where the University of Northampton has its own lab space in one of the outbuildings. Um, we've had various research grants to set up, and they're basically take a, a neuroscience approach. So they're looking at brainwave activity in mediums and looking at what changes are actually taking place while these practicing mediums, trying to become certified mediums, whatever that may be, um, what's going on when they believe they are channeling the dead at that very moment, what's happening with their brainwave activity compared to other people that don't yeah. make this claim. Mm. So would you visit a psychic or a medium yourself? Uh, Have you ever? No, because I've got too many friends who are psychic mediums. And, you know, I've gone along to their <laughs> demonstrations and never once have they come out with anything unique for me. And it really frustrates them. Um, they'll make guesses as well. Like uh, I had one, I won't say their name, but I remember recently when I was doing some lectures and then I thought, you know what, I'll sit, I'll sit in and, on their demonstration afterwards. And he said to me, I'm getting two dates for you. It's... Um, March, March 7th and July 23rd. What do these mean to you? Nothing, I'm afraid. Are you sure? Have a think. No, nothing. Okay, well, there's another thing. Perhaps in yeah. a <laughs> Oh, yeah, that'll get us out of it. Um, and then the other one was, well, I've got another thing for you. Who was, who didn't you, who didn't you manage to say goodbye to? No, it's on, it's on your mother's side. Who didn't you manage to get to say goodbye to? Um, no, no one on my mother's side. I said, well, you know, as a number of years ago now, but my grandmother um, on that side, my mum's mum, I was there only hours before she passed away, so I did get to say goodbye. Um, so, you know, I'm a very, I live in a very small family. He goes, no, no, there's definitely some woman on your mother's side you didn't get to say goodbye to. I'm like, no, afraid not, sorry. And he goes, oh, I'm getting really annoyed with you. I'll see um, you in the car park later. <laughs> but can you not see what, what, what you're saying, how in a way the medium or psychic was, was kind of leading you to agree and how easy it is for people to feel almost under pressure to please the, the psychic. I've, I've noticed Oh, abso some, absolutely. I mean, you've got to overcome that barrier yeah. um, because um, they're also saying, mm -hmm. be absolutely honest with me. And, you know, they'll say initially, you know, I just want a yes or no, nothing else. Um, and in some of those instances, they do want clarity, especially when they're sticking to something and not moving on. There's a really weird one that I saw down in Portsmouth, and I just thought, let it go. This was a number of years ago, and the medium came to one person and said, when you were a child, um, I'm seeing um, someone has got um, several tortoises in the garden, and they're painting with white paint numbers on them, and they're racing these tortoises down the garden. Who was that? No, we'd never owned tortoises. Yeah, but it's it's either in the family or it's someone that you know. And I can see it quite clearly. And they're telling me, this message is for you. Have a think. So they think for a moment. No, definitely not. Never owned tortoises. Never knew anyone that owned tortoises. And, you know, whenever I have come into contact with tortoises, they've never had paint on them. 
no, this is definitely for you. And they wouldn't let it go. And so they said, I'm sorry, they're telling me it's definitely for you. Take it away with you. And I thought, oh, you know, you should have, if you're making this up, you should have let it go ages ago. And even if you genuinely believe these voices are talking to you, that is the most stupid message that has come through because they're not letting it go and the person is clearly saying this isn't for me. I mean, they were really going to go home and say, oh, hang on a minute, my grandmother owned tortoises and we did paint on them. How could I forget that? I absolutely love this because you're researching it and putting it on the map, but you're also having this wonderful, healthy almost challenging approach to it and I do love that because there's too much like blind following and devotion I mean I went to um, a demonstration a couple of months ago and literally this is what I got I can see a woman standing behind you and she's nodding and that was it they moved on I mean really yeah I do understand I I don't get where you're coming from and how do we clean this up though there is obviously a lot of frauds working in this industry what what is there any way, because I mean, I'm, it's my passion at the moment to try and sort of get some mm. scientific validation for it. Hence, I've been working with scientists and, and trying to go to demonstrations to see if I can find the real deal, although I'm mm. subjective. So it's, it's difficult for me to be an authority on it. How can we clean this up? Because people every day now, and especially now, there is a big movement towards more and more people visiting psychics, healers and mediums because we live in difficult times mm. and religion is gone. For many people how do we clean it up is there any way that there could be regulation yeah in this i think industry? it's quite a long answer i mean first of all i know we were laughing um about it and i'd say you know it's terrible that we're shunned into a, a corner where we say um you can't make a joke of of it at all because of the very nature of it nonsense there are so many different fields even death dying and bereavement we laugh and joke about that because it's a good way of trying to cope with it you know so many comedies make a joke about people dying in in different ways and stuff people die every day in in different horrific ways and sometimes in very silly situations as well it's a very kind of human thing to actually laugh and joke about different things so you know we've seen silly instances there of mediumship so we have a laugh and a joke about that. Comedians have even kind of um, replicated this mediumistic stance and made a joke about it. Um, but let's look at the actual, the nature of it. The Society of Psychical Research that was formed in 1882 um, to look at these claims because of the rise of spiritualism in the 1840s. And they were, you know, systematically looking at different methods to test these either mental mediums, the trans mediums, those that believe that there's this sort of cognitive change and they're taking on the personality and delivering direct messages from the dead one or two of those either transforming taking on this persona or just delivering the message or the physical mediums where in a seance room physical phenomena happens and the controls got better um more skeptics were brought into the seance room to look for potential ways in which this phenomena was occurring they get magicians involved they get escapologists involved as well especially when they tied the mediums down and then through to modern day as well, as I say, we're taking this neuroscience approach as well. So if you go back to psychical research history, we sort of left mediumship behind um, from about the 1920s, 1930s. You only start to see tentative reports in both the SPR journal, the British one, and then the American SPR um, after that, because we'd had this Rhine revolution and a lot of testing for ESP turned to the university setting. It's only in recent years, maybe the last 20 years or so, that there was so much hype in the media about mediumship and popular um, 
skeptics and debunkers talking about them, ones that had nothing to do with parapsychology, the parapsychology sort of bit back because their main kind of grunt was, uh, it's terrible that mediums are doing this for people, you know, pretending they're talking to the dead uh, and, and consoling the bereaved. You know, why are they outright lying to them and in some cases taking money? This is terrible. It's very wrong that they're doing this. Well, there's been various research papers done into mediumship as an alternative to bereavement counselling, and there are no papers that I am aware of whatsoever in peer-reviewed journals that show that this ultimately has a negative impact. Some people don't want to be stigmatised in bereavement as going to a bereavement counsellor um, and being seen as though they can't handle bereavement and they've actually got mental health issues as a consequence. They would sooner go to something that is widely portrayed as a form of entertainment and in that setting is widely accepted, no matter what people ultimately think of mediumship itself. So they'll go to that. And if someone believes that they've had at least an inkling of a message from that person and that they're safe, they're well, they can have a goodbye message, end on good terms, the outcomes are astounding. There are various positive psychological aspects to it. It even helps these people's own health. You'll see in people that have been married for many, many years um, that they suddenly lose a partner and they don't have these kinds of experiences. We have what's called broken heart syndrome and the other person might die off within a few weeks because you know the sense of loss and the person actually ultimately gone attacks their immune system and they just break down and the body just shuts itself off and they go as well. So to have these experiences and the suggestion of a continuity and you you take that on board in whatever way you want as the bereaved, um, it really seems to help people. They change their social stance. They might go and do something new, take up a new hobby, go and meet new people, get out and about again. It's a new zest for life. It's a new page while still embracing the fact that I'm never going to forget this person. They were an important part of my life. So I think the medium has a really important part to play in that aspect. We can still then test the claim they're making. So on one side, let's look at that health aspect. Now let's bring it back to parapsychology. You believe you're in contact with the dead. We can take this neuroscience approach, what's going on inside your head, and also the claims you're coming out with. Do they just match cold reading and Barnum script? And therefore I, as a psychologist, can just copy what you're doing. And I have done many times before and really convinced people. Um, but I've never gone as far as to say that I'm pretending I'm contacting the dead. I've just told them things about their house and the surprise as to how accurate it is when I actually think it's very vague and they're filling in the gaps. Um, that's what's going on. So we could test it in that aspect. Mm. We can still test. Mediumship has a, a kind of a strong place, really, but it's really shining through in terms of here's an alternative to bereavement counselling. You have places like the Forever Family Foundation that are trying to promote this take while still saying, you know, um, a large part is for you as the bereaved, what are you gaining from it? However, we're still working with scientists who would like to look at what's Barnum script, what's cold reading and what seems to go beyond that. And also the Wimbridge Institute as well. Mm. Mm. I, I'm 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 gripped by this, and but as you say, it does bring a certain amount of comfort. So in a way, there's nothing wrong with that. We all must find ways, as long as the medium does not. Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a gambling addiction element to it there that's yet to be studied, and I do want to look at that because yeah. um, it's so obvious, and yet uh, I've never got any of my colleagues or students to say, "Why don't you go away and look yeah. at people that regularly go to see mediums." And, and how much it seems to reflect mm. a form of gambling addiction uh, and this obsessive nature for it. I just want a bit more. I want another message. Well, at what point yeah. can you step away and, and cope with life without that person, yeah. without the need to go and see that exactly. medium? How long does someone actually go to see a bereavement counsellor for? What is the natural time period? I know each case is very different. Some people will be suffering high grief deaths where they suddenly lost that mm. person in, say, you know, some sort of car crash. And there was never an instance of goodbye or any inkling that person was going to die that day. 
um, through to low grief death, where you're perfectly aware that person has got a terminal illness, they're going to die, but you've had that chance to prepare, say goodbye. We've got varying levels of how people will cope with that loss of someone. And therefore, how long do they actually want to attach themselves to someone like a medium afterwards as well. It's not been studied yet, and I, I think there's some gap in the market there. Well, mediums operating with ethical code, of course, would stop mm-hmm. repeat visits. You would hope that that would be a mark of a, of, a, of a good medium. Also, you've done a lot of research on dreams of the departed, which I'm fascinated in because I've written way too many books about dreams. But um, <laughs> um, So tell me about that, having dreams of, of departed loved ones and, and what your research has revealed. Yeah, not as much as I'd like. And I wouldn't necessarily say research as such. I mean, with the after-death communication research we're doing that's supported by the Scientific and Medical Network, um, most recently we we sent out loads of questionnaires in English, French and Spanish, and we we got 1,005 responses. Um, And these were 40-minute questionnaires to fill in, so there's quite a lot. And there were sections on uh, dreaming of the dead. Um, In my first PhD as well, I looked at this as well. I was looking at a variety of after-death communications and um, within that were dreams of the dead as well. So um, these are things that I still need to follow up as uh, um, in terms of putting them into actual research papers, specifically on dreams of the dead and um, visions of the dead and hearing the dead and things like that. Um, but again, they, they're very unique. People that dream of the dead believe these experiences to be something completely more than a dream. They find them extremely real as though they're interacting with that person in the waking state. And they believe they can reach out and touch this person. You'll get similar effects as when people see an apparition of that deceased person. They'll say that they look 10 years younger than they did when they died. Um, but the unique thing may be when they come with veridical information. So they say, go and check this, this and this out. Or go and look in my diary on page such and such and you'll find the answer too. And it turns out to be correct. Or in some instances, the dead has come to them with a, a premonition. So a precognitive message that turns out to be correct as well, a, a warning or something like that. Um, so for parapsychology, those instances are very interesting. The rest just seem to be, to me, as a skeptic, as a psychologist, they just seem to be a dream like any other. The, the death of that person is very much on your mind. And therefore, you've had a dream of interacting with that person. Some of them are very lucid. People are very much aware that they are dreaming of that deceased person. Other people just take it as any other dream and don't really reflect on it until they wake up. Um, So there's a variety of scenarios. I found it very interesting that there'd even been a researcher called Barrett, 1991-92, had published a paper on dreams of um, the dead for the bereaved in a mega journal of death and dying and she categorized the the different scenarios within the dream in which people interact with the dead and one of the most popular ones was speaking to them on the telephone and i thought well that that's weird because you know in the dream scenario surely you can make up any kind of situation you want and you would have thought the desired scenario would be face to face with this person that you've met but maybe not maybe if it's aunt or uncle so and so and you didn't see them regularly your more regular contact was to pick up the telephone once a week and speak to them you know maybe that's why it's visualized as such within the dream because that's what your your mind is most familiar with um but they have just as much a good impact on you as sensing the presence of the dead seeing the dead smelling them um they're all bundled into one people might just say well how can it be the same as the others your it's clearly a dream right. not for the person experiencing it they see it as something more so if that's the case we lump it into the same category as and they other ease after-death the grieving journey well. they in your um research do you feel that people are able to deal better with grief when they have these experiences or not 
Absolutely. In the the initial research that was done, the SPR in the 1880s, was just looking at the commonality of these experiences, and they're highly common. And it wasn't until um, the 19, late 1960s, a, a GP called William Dowie Rees, who was based in North Wales, um, he was doing a lot of research for a GP. GPs just go about their business, you know, seeing many, many people each day and prescribing this, that and the other for various um, mild conditions. And uh, he was just doing research on um, the impact of bereavement on people, the psychological and physiological impact. He was looking at the the frequency of rural tractor incidences yeah. as well. It was very strange the kind of research he was doing. Um, but he he decided he wanted to do this and go and get a medical doctorate, an MD thesis through King's College London. So if he was doing more research in these journals, like the Journal of Thanatology, Omega, um, British Medical Journal and even um, tentative stuff of the parapsychology, he wanted respect from his peers that he was, you know, well trained in research and how to um, conduct studies properly. And so he focused on looking at the negative aspects of bereavement in his MD thesis. And towards the end of interviewing 293 widows and widowers, um, discovered that some people said, oh, you know, after they'd gone, I still felt them around. And I think his reaction was, excuse me, well, can you just go back? What did you say that you still felt them around? And they clarified. And so he had to go back to his entire participant pool and re-interview them and found that roughly 50% of people said that they had these experiences after this, suffering the loss of a spouse. And so asked them different questions about, were you expecting this experience to happen? Vast majority said no. Did you find these experiences helpful, harmful, or you were not sure? Vast majority found them to be helpful. And so he said that they're perfectly natural. They, they don't seem to occur due to age, race, religion, belief. Um, if they're going to happen, they just seem to happen. And that still seems to be the same today. Following his MD thesis, there is at least another 14 or 15 doctorates, including my own, um, from MDs through to PhDs and psychology doctorates, looking at this, but from different aspects. How does a family unit cope with um, these constant experiences after losing someone close? Um, what about just um, psychologists that claim that they've had these experiences? So approaching different colleges and only the psychologists about these experiences. Again, roughly 50% said that they'd had them. So again, regardless of um, background, education, the most recent set of questionnaires we did, that 1,005 that we collected, vast majority of those people um, had gone into higher education as well. So these are people of various different professions and um, gone into higher education they, they were just in the right place at the right time to have these experiences. But on the whole, we, we're looking at the impact as well. They seem to be very therapeutic for people. You could say that it's the mind trying to fill in the gap of loss and, and try to help naturally soothe this separation anxiety because the, the mind does not want to be no. suffering the pain of loss. It doesn't like mental pain. It tries to get rid of it if it can. Um, the only reason that people um, suffer depression when they, they are clinically depressed is we've got this um, serotonin imbalance and the brain is not processing it properly. Um, but separation, we can all relate to that. A childhood toy is smashed or broken and you know it's not coming back or um, you have to give up your childhood blanket and childhood clothes. We, we get attached to material things and then also living things as well and when we don't have them in our day-to-day -day routine when we know that we're not allowed them back forever it's a painful thing so the brain will try and do things best it can to try and help you with that so it could be that sometimes these experiences are created you might mishear something and think it's your name being called out by the the voice characteristics of the deceased um, and, and again the dreams of them and other things the brain is trying to create these experiences for you to soothe that that gap of loss 
Um, certainly, we found that in terms of people's ability to hope, create goals and move forward, hope levels are far higher in people that have these experiences than the bereaved that don't. And hope is extremely important for our, our health and happiness and well-being and being able to move forward every day and set new goals. But there's a variety of other emotions that come in, joy, happiness, love. These are all experienced when people have these these phenomena as well. Of course, there could be all these rational explanations. Absolutely. I completely with you that, but in, in the spirit of, of discovery, there could also be a paranormal explanation and we don't know, we can't shut off that possibility too. Well, it, it depends if you've got an instance of veridical information or collective cases. So in a few people that I have interviewed over the time, and, and this is, you know, we're now into the thousands, um, the most interesting cases were from psychologists, medical doctors, or um, end-of-life care nurses. Mm. And this is where they've seen an apparition, but with someone else present who also saw it as well. Or they've seen poltergeist-type activity, but they were one of eight witnesses to that exact same event. Um, so these are the remarkable things that go beyond just saying, well, it's just in your head. That We've got other witnesses there present, or when they have encountered the deceased, the deceased is giving them a message that ha they had no understanding about until they went away and followed it up. And it, turned, it turns out that, you know, going from step one to two to three to four to five, later down the line, it all ties up in like, oh, that's what the message means. I've had to go through all these various channels to find out from their diary or so-and-so who knew so-and-so who knew the deceased turns out the message that they had was for this person three or four spaces removed and it turns out to be correct so it's interesting that there's these kind of follow-up games sometimes for the bereaved or sometimes these phenomena that are just there straight in front of your eye but there's other people witnessing them as well they don't seem to fit into our present conventional explanations if we go back to our definition of parapsychology these current paradigms of science these collective cases the vertical information they don't fit our current paradigms apart from maybe group suggestion but a lot of these are very powerful when it's a physical effect some movement of object um so we can only backtrack and go to the early society of psychical research ideas where they thought no maybe this isn't the dead maybe this is some sort of group telepathic experience and someone's initiating it but again we've jumped over all these conventional explanations we've used occam's razor and if we've actually separated all this wheat from the chaff that's when we're landed with how far can we consider telepathy how far could we then rule that out and consider some aspect of human personality surviving so we have got these unique instances they, they are very very few very few because we've got a lot of conventional explanations that do seem to fit the bill, but we still have these unique instances. Fascinating, absolutely intriguing. And if I was one of your students, I would be in the front row, as I'm sure everybody listening today will be. Thank you so much, Carl. <laughs> you're, you're endlessly fascinating. How can people find out more about your research, where you talk, your books? Where can people go? Oh, that's it for now. I could keep going. No, I know <laughs> you can. I mean, I know. <laughs> No, but where can people find out about you? So come and hear you talk, because I have heard Cal talk. He's absolutely mesmerising. So I, I would encourage everyone to go and seek him out. But where can people find out about you and read about you? If there's any young person listening, how can they apply to your to, to, to study with you? How, how, where can people find out about you? Well, if they want to study, first and foremost, go to my website. Go to Callum, with two L's, CallumECooper.com, and you can contact me through there. It also links to my Twitter page on the contact page. I sometimes put posts up about where I am or things I'm going to go and do. Um, they can find me through there. I also frequently give talks to the Society of Psychical Research. That's just www.spr.ac.uk. Um, and they list all their upcoming events. I'll be talking at their conference in September in Leicester. 
Um, there's a few papers that I'll be delivering, some of which I, I mentioned earlier, my students' papers and things like that. Um, and then if you are interested in my books, go to Amazon, click on the, the selection for looking for books and put in my name, Callum E. Cooper, and it should bring up my author page on there. So there's different channels you can find me on, but keep following Twitter, look at my website and you'll get different updates for things that are going, going on. Absolutely. I highly recommend that because you will never be bored. If you follow <laughs> Cal, you will never be bored. I assure you that. I'm just going to end with two fun questions, which I ask all my guests. So uh, just just suspend disbelief for a minute. So if you could go back in time and talk to your 16-year-old self, what one piece of advice would you give? Oh, God. Um... <laughs> you can't use science here, so you can't use logic. Just <laughs> what piece of advice? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'd say. Um, Keep watch going. Yourself. You're on Be the careful. right track. Make sensible decisions, but regret nothing. Regret? <laughs> oh, that's. I'll stick with that. No regrets, and that's what a lot of people who are close to passing say, isn't it? That they don't. I want. always say that because everything that you've done, the good and the bad, has led to where we are now. You and I speaking to each other right now. So, um, you you never know where you would be, and any bad mistakes that you make in your life or arguments you get into into with people, they're all learning curves, and you become a better person for them. So um, as much as we worry about negative experiences in life or losing people or feeling lonely or upsetting people, we're human. We're going to experience those. So don't worry about it. Get through them and never regret that situation. Just look at the positives that came out of it afterwards. Thank you. That's life changing advice. Thank you. And as we've been walking on shores and white shores, and it's time now to head back to Middle Earth, um, if you could be a character or an object in Lord of the Rings, what would it be and why? Oh, um, I always, uh, maybe it's because it's Sean Bean. Everyone loves Sean, <laughs> Sean Bean because he's a Yorkshireman. He's kind of close to here. Um, but I love the character of Boromir, but he was extremely human. He was so susceptible to uh, the ring, wasn't he? But um, yes. it, it kind of showed in the end. It was like a someone that had been given a taste of heroin and then and then wanted more, but it was just in front of him. He was being teased with it. It was only at the end that he realised the error of his ways. But I love the human nature of him in, in line with his brother, Faramir. Faramir knew. he Again, there's the example of what I said, never regret things, but also look at things that have happened. He reflected on what had happened to his brother and was able to take from that experience that it led to Boromir's death. And he was able to just slightly rise above it and resist temptation. And, and and it helped him. He did good to others because of something so negative that happened to his brother and his own loss. So I, I like the character of Boromir. I like the character of Faramir as well. They're the most kind of human of our main stars in it, really. And, you know, they're so mortal. And, and we see that because Boromir passes away, but he puts up such fight and such strength. Um, so I, I've always liked that character. I, I've never really kind of been drawn so much to the mythical side, all the elves and that, they're beautiful, so angelic and beautiful. But I like the human nature and the moral stories that we get from characters like Bor Boromir and Faramir. Oh, that's beautiful. But I shall let you go back to the Shire now, okay? Thank <laughs> I love you very it. Much. <laughs> I'll set off some fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Cal. Thank you. I hope you found that interview intriguing. Again, please do let me know. I promised before the interview that I'd read you uh, a couple of stories, the kind of stories that Callum originally got in touch with me about because they fascinated him so much and he wanted to delve deeper. So I'll read them now. Um, and they're both stories, actually, the ones I'm going to do because they were the ones that um, Callum got in touch with me about because he was interested in technology at the time. He was about to write Telephone Calls from the Dead, I believe. So obviously they're, they're technology based, but um, 
I'm going to, to read them that the theme here is is modern technology, because I found that the afterlife often many afterlife stories do center these days around telephones, the internet, because obviously that's where we spend most of our time. So what better way for, for spirit to reach us? Anyway, it's rare to hear a voice at the end of a telephone line. Um, I get lots of stories about phones ringing mysteriously with a, a, a exactly the right time, say when a loved one died, a phone rings and there's nobody at the end, that kind of thing. But it's extremely rare to actually hear a voice at the end of the telephone line. But this is exactly what happened to Camilla, who sent me this letter. Teresa, when I was about nine, my grandmother was still alive. The vast few years of her life must have been terrible for her as she suffered from Alzheimer's. I remember when my parents took me to see her in the nursing home when she lived, where, where she lived, and she just seemed to be wasting away. I was really scared to see someone so frail, but my parents made me visit her before she died. Um, I remember one day sitting in my kitchen doing my homework when mum's phone rang. I called mum to answer it, but she was busy upstairs and she asked me to. I rummaged through her bag and took the call. It was grandmother. Hello, it's grandmother here. Don't worry, everything will be all right. Tell your parents, please don't worry. Everything's going to be fine now. I said, thank you and, and hung up. And then I yelled upstairs to my mum and said, grandmother has just said she she's okay. Um, um, but my mum didn't believe me because grandmother was really far too ill to be using phones. At the time, I was nine, so I didn't really think that deeply about it. Anyway, I think it must have been about an hour later, we received a call from my great aunt. She told us that my grandmother had died exactly an hour ago. Now, this did freak me out as this was exactly the time I had got my phone call and I had not imagined it. Grandma had called me. I, I didn't remind my mum about the phone call and nobody ever really spoke about it, the phone call that I said I'd had with my, my grandmother. I think it, it just upset my mother too much. And so it's a secret that I've kind of kept with me all this time, Teresa, and it's a real relief to finally share it with you and I hope many other believers, something incredible happened. I did receive that call. I can't explain it. I believe I spoke to my grandmother's spirit. Whoa, what a story. Here's another one. This one was sent to me by Jenny. Teresa, one Sunday morning, I slept in a little longer than usual. I'd been working late the night before and needed to catch up on my sleep. My phone rang and I ignored it, thinking whoever it was would leave a voice message. Five minutes later, the phone rang again. I was awake now, but when I reached for my phone, it just stopped ringing. I fell back into my bed and after about a minute or so, it rang again. This time I was ready for it and I answered it immediately. It was my father. I was delighted to hear from him. I loved the sound of his rich and warm voice. Always have. He asked me how I was doing, and when I told him I was working too hard and I was tired, he reminded me that nobody on their deathbed remembers how much time they put in at work. What they think about is the connections, the loving connections they have made, and if they and those they loved were happy. I laughed and asked him how he knew all that, and he said, 
Trust me, Daisy. That was his nickname for me. I know. Then he said he loved me and always would and hung up. When I put the phone down, it felt like I had just done the ice bucket challenge. I felt a profound sense of shock and wonder that I had not thought to question the call. You see, my father had died six, yes, six years earlier. Then it hit me again. My father had died six years ago, that day, this very day, the day that I got this call, these strange calls. I had completely forgotten it was the anniversary of my father's death. Wow, I was letting work take over my life. I called my brother and he said I was imagining it. He told me to check my phone records. I did, and at 7.05, 7.12, and then again at 7.14, I had received calls from a number listed as unknown. Of course, there could be rational explanations, as Callum pointed out in our interview in this episode, for both the stories that I read that perhaps they were dreaming or imagination or the calls that that Jenny got were spam calls. But the perfection of the timing speaks otherwise for Jenny. And as for the previous story about receiving a call from her grandmother, there's no reason why she should make that up because she was feeling particularly disconnected from her grandmother at the time. For both these Ladies, this was an afterlife sign. And even if rational explanations can be found, it felt real to them and gave them something much needed, be that um, reassurance, hope, comfort, um, and anything that does that, anything that brings a powerful message of eternal love and that death ends a life and not a relationship is heaven sent in all my books. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and please join me again next week when we will walk together once more on White Shores. And get in touch with me too at my angeltalk710 at aol.com email. Yes, I am still on AOL, but I have evolved and moved with the times too. Um, And you can find me on Teresa Chung author Facebook and Instagram. Um, Please do message me and offer your feedback and suggestions for the show because I want it to be um, a podcast that brings you comfort, hope, joy and inspiration. If you've enjoyed the music on this podcast, it's from Clown Ri, that's C-L-U-A-I-N-R-I. And you can find out about them at www.clownri.com. The music's from an album called From Lips of Angels, available on iTunes. And some of the tracks on that album were inspired by one of my books, An Angel Changed My Life.